This week on Kettle of Fish, Professor Ronald Millett stops by to talk about positrons, paradoxes, and parallel worlds. Welcome to our after show. We call Kettle of Fish the No Politics Laughter Show. It's time for Kettle of Fish. No debate, hate, or argument allowed on Kettle of Fish. It's like a Willy Wonka psychedelic acid trip. So hooray for Kettle of Fish. Do you love that jingle? Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. You, you can make it better. Right. Bring your vocals up just a little bit, Nick. In the beginning, uh, you're a little muffled. We we did it on Audacity, so I I don't know how to do that. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, yeah, I love <laughs> that. I figured that much out. That old jingle sticks in my head for like the next hour every time I hear it. <laughs> right. Welcome to Kettle of Fish, the show after the show, the talk after the show, the talk after the talk, the thirty minute scientific money shot after the two hours well no political foreplay today time travel foreplay um Dwayne D Fern are you guys ready to get fishy yes yes, yes. yes. all right uh, I'll, I'll probably be stumbling around the house like after I had a, like a whole bottle of tequila after because that's how confused and messed up I'm going to get but I'm looking forward to it <laughs> I think we finally found something that will shut the Wayne up. Just start every time yep. you start going off on a political <laughs> tangent. I'm Me just sure. going to start talking about multiple world theory, and then you'll be like, uh, "Okay, I'll vote for Bernie. <laughs> Leave me alone." Who's on or the boobies, or, or boobies, or have Fern and her voice say boobies, and that's all you got to do. And I'll be, I'll shut up. Boobies. Oh my goodness. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, Nick. What did you ask me? Who's on the show today, D? Let us have it. Oh, yes. Today we have super duper all around smart guy, Dr. Uh, Millet, or Mallet, sorry, Dr. Ron Mallet. And he is a uh, theoretical physicist and author, uh, taught physics at uh, University of Connecticut. Um, and he has, uh, there's a video titled, and this is this is all you need to know Dr. Mallet sending binary code through time. Um, if anybody can build a time machine or a time traveling device, I think he might just have it. I, I, I mean, it's crazy. I tend to agree with you. His book made super smart guy. All right, well, let's get him in here. Let's not have him on the line any time longer. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that, was, that show came from the future. You can't blame me. I got that message. <laughs> Dr. Mallet, how you doing? Send yourself today, a message not to do that. Fine. <laughs> Good to hear you. How are you doing? I am doing great, sir. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I love the movie, The World's First Time Machine. In fact, watching That's the movie cool. on Hulu is why I reached out to you. I especially loved your book, Time Traveler. And I know you've heard this before, but I've got to say it on the air. This book was not at all what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be kind of a dry scientific text about the um, technology and theories behind time travel. But it really is a beautiful personal story interwoven with a lot of science that's easy to understand. Do you hear a lot from people that they were surprised about the content of the book? Yeah, yeah, thank you, Nick. I mean, the thing is, as a matter of fact, I do. And and I try to, to tell people, in fact, that's why... You know, the subtitle is uh, Scientist's Personal Mission to Make Time Travel a Reality. And that I wanted to be both a personal story as well as a scientific journey because the thing is is that I want to motivate people to understand that the 
excitement and also the tragedy that led to my understanding or, or my interest in time travel. But I wanted to bring them along on the journey. You know, rather than saying in this chapter we will discuss, I wanted them to, to, to grow and learn the subject as I grew and learned the subject. And, uh, and to also see the struggles that I had along the way, personal struggles, uh, you know, societal struggles, and, and so that they could connect. And uh, I have found that that is what has happened. Yeah, I mean, mission accomplished. I definitely felt like I took a walk in your shoes. And, you know, the big takeaway for me on the book is, of course, what motivated you. I think everybody who's listening to the show today should have some awareness of the history. But your father had passed away at the young age of 33 of a sudden um, heart attack. You were 10 years old. Um, kind of went through a little bit of a depression, ran across a classics, tales, comic book of the time machine. And this has kind of been the motivating force in your life to travel back in time and warn your father and see your father again, correct? No, that's right. That's exactly, that's that's a good summary, but that's that's exactly it. I mean, my father was the center of my life. I mean, I was the oldest of four children. I grew up in the Bronx, and he was a television repairman. And uh, he spent a lot of time with me. He gave me uh, gifts like uh, gyroscope and crystal radio set. And uh, I really felt that uh, I was going to be going into his trade eventually. And right. he looked like he was a robust and healthy man, but he, as uh, you pointed out, he died of a massive heart attack at 33. And I was 10. And it devastated my world. But among the gifts he left me was a love for reading. And I came across the classics illustrated version of the time machine. And the thing is, is that right at the beginning, the uh, it says um, scientific people know very well that time is just a kind of space, and we can move forward and backward in time just as we can in space. And when I read that, I knew that was going to be my goal. That was going to be the thing that was going to make give my life meaning was building a time machine to see him again and maybe save his life. The thing is, is that I even tried putting something together based on the cover um, with bicycle hoops, yeah. radio pieces, and of course it didn't work, but I remembered it said scientific people, and I was fortunate a couple of years after that. We were very poor, I should mention, after I, uh, my father passed away, and I used to go to the Salvation Army to, uh, to get books. I had a very serious book habit, and I could get books for about five cents, paperback books, and the one that changed my life in a scientific way was uh, it was called the universe and Dr. Einstein, and um, even before I opened it up, I knew it was it spoke to me because it had a picture of Einstein next to an hourglass, and to me that meant that Einstein had something to do with time. And even though I couldn't understand everything in the book, it was even though it was a popularization, I did grasp the idea that Einstein said that time was not something that was fixed; it could be altered. There were ways of altering it. So I knew that. Uh, that that if time could be altered, then that meant a time machine might be possible, and so that was my second goal was to Einstein to dedicate my life to understanding Einstein so that I could build a time machine, and that was the beginning of that part of the journey. All right. Well, not to give any spoilers here, but I was really surprised at the end of the book to learn, and we could talk about the science of this in a moment, but to learn about black holes and framing and how you want to use um, lasers to create a circular loop in time. But the revelation you had um, towards the end of the book, and I don't know if this has changed since because the book's a few years old, but that you would only be able, it's only possible 
to travel back in time to the point that machine was turned on. And, of course, that would answer the question why we haven't seen any time travelers today. But the whole time to take away from me, I'm thinking, does this affect your drive to go no, back in time knowing? Yeah, I mean, no, how does that affect all. you? That doesn't affect me at all because the thing is is that it means that future generations will have the possibility of controlling their destiny. And, um, and the thing is is that this, this limitation is actually a limitation of physics. It doesn't matter what method you're talking about, whether you're talking about wormholes or rotating black holes or whatever, you can't go back earlier than the process that's causing the effect. And that's just simple physics. So, um, But the thing is is that to me, the possibility of a time machine means that in the future we will be able to do things like, for instance, I think thought of it as uh, sort of an early warning device. I mean, imagine if we had a way of sending information back to ourselves to warn ourselves of future disasters like hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes, the thousands of lives we could save. So um, the thing is, is that in, in the way in which I summarize it is that when the first time machine is turned on, our descendants will be able to communicate and visit us, but we won't be able to go back to see our ancestors, not, at least not with a terrestrial type of time machine. I mean, right, the thing right. is, uh, you know, I also point out the fact that since the 1990s, uh, scientists have become very aware of the fact that uh, before the 1990s, we didn't know scientifically whether other stars had their own planets. I mean, we were, the only one we were aware of was our own star their solar system. But since the 90s, we found what are known as extrasolar planets. These are, mean that these are planets that are orbiting other stars. Wow. And this is, that was extremely important because that meant within our, just the neighborhood of our own galaxy, they found hundreds of these. And what they found was is that some of these stars that are orbiting, they're orbiting too close to their sun, so they're, they're too hot. Are, in other cases, the stars are orbiting too far away, so they're too cold. But an extremely important and exciting class has been found recently, and you can probably tell from the title of physicists like to give these things um, uh, amusing titles sometimes. The type, they, they call this class of planets uh, the Goldilocks planets. You know, right, right. They're they're orbiting just right, and that means that um, it's very likely that uh, there will be many of these planets that can sustain life. And this, this is just in the neighborhood of our own galaxy. And you have to remember there are billions of galaxies. So right now, serious scientists, and this is, is, it is believed that the universe is very likely teeming with life. Now, what differentiates that from UFOlogy is the fact that there's still scientists still are skeptical about whether or not that life has visited us. But there's no doubt anymore about the fact that the universe is probably teeming with life. What this means is that if they have, uh, there's probably going to be planets that are more primitive than we are, but there'll probably be planets that are very much more advanced than we are. And if these advanced technological civilizations have developed uh, time travel in a time machine, let's say 10,000 years ago, then if we eventually visit them, they're and they had their device turned on for that time continuously, that would mean that we could actually go back and visit our ancient past, ultimately. So it doesn't mean that the past is, is totally barred from us. It just means that from the standpoint of a terrestrial time machine, uh, we're having that limitation. But as I said, it's not a 
it's it means that the distant past won't is probably going to be barred to us until we are advanced enough to get out there to the stars or well, they come in us. Let me understand this though, because we kind of touched on this. We just did an hour long about time travel on our regular Sunday show. So if if I go to another planet where they have a time machine that's set, you know, they invented a hundred years ago. I show up a hundred years in their past on their planet, right? And then the, then I have to get into a rocket ship and fly to Earth, correct? Because even if I go right now to let's say it's October and I fly and I go in the time machine till June, sixteen ninety five, ain't I going to end up in the ocean or end up in outer space, depending on the position the Earth is in relative to the time that I left? Oh yeah, you, you, would, you, would, you wouldn't. You would have to do it on their planet. You couldn't. Uh, you would have to do it on their planet and then leave their planet and come back. And so these things would have to depend on timing. So if, if we're, I'm assuming that we're not going to be using rockets that can just use somehow travel even near the speed of light. I'm talking about, when I say advanced rocket technology, I'm talking about the type of technology that would work um, by warping space-time that would allow us to actually travel through uh, either a wormhole or some other way of manipulating time so that it doesn't take us uh, centuries to reach another planet. I mean, that that gotcha. is not you see what I'm saying? No, that's that's not going to work. All right. In Let fact, the movie, you... the movie Interstellar was very good in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's why so many people love that. Yeah. yeah. Let me I ask mean, you this. That, that's close to what is going to have to happen in, in order for it to, uh, to be achieved. I've got to ask you kind of this paradoxical question we were talking about on the show today, and maybe you can clear this up for us. I build a time machine based on your circular laser theory. I build that time machine today. I turn it on. I go – I get a message from myself 20 years in the future. It says, hey, Nick, we found a cure for cancer. Here it is. Get it. Disseminate it to the masses. Let's cure cancer. I get it. I give it to the proper authorities. They cure cancer. 20 years from now, there's no reason to send a message because there is no cancer. Is the onus still on me to send that message back even though there's no cancer so you get it? And if I don't, will time change back to everybody to no cure for cancer because I didn't send a message back to my previous self? Or has everything changed where it will remain that way whether when I catch up and get to 20 years, whether I send a message back or not? Just real quick, yeah. Nick, I think we should talk about the patent infringement by you stealing the information to make the machine. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. Right. So the thing is that what you're talking about brings up all sorts of issues. Um, one of them, of course, is the most famous one, is the so-called grandfather paradox, um, which is that, uh, just to remind you, that if you go back in time, for example, to uh, prevent your grandparents from meeting each other, then... Um, they don't have your parents, and your parents don't have you. So how did you go back to, you know, right. prevent meeting? So, and that's the, what you're talking about is almost a form of that, um, which is that if you do something, if you send information from the future back to the past and change the past, then what happens to the future that led to your changing the past? And there are actually a number of schools of thought uh, that have been addressed by scientists. One of the most uh, popular, I should say, is coming from quantum mechanics because everything we've been talking about right now is related to Einstein's theory of relativity. And there are two pillars of physics. 
One is uh, relativity, the other is quantum mechanics. Of course, as you know, quantum mechanics underlies all of our modern technology. I mean, from everything from the periodic table to uh, portable, I mean, to uh, cell phones and personal computers and so on. The thing is, is that quantum theory is very, very weird. It says that you cannot predict exactly what's going to happen. You can only predict the probability of what's going to happen. Right. And it was a mm-hmm. physicist named Hugh Everett III back in 1957. Uh, he applied quantum mechanics to the universe as a whole. And what he found was is that a very strange result was that every time there is a decision point, then you might say all of the possible decisions uh, occur. By that I mean, for example, the example that I like to use is that suppose today that you were trying to decide at lunch to have a cheeseburger or a fish sandwich. Uh, at the moment that uh, Nick chose the cheeseburger, the universe would split. There would now be a separate universe, a wholly separate universe, not connected to this one, in which uh, you have choose, chosen the uh, fish sandwich. So, and this happens for this this branching process is happening for every single decision that we're making, and it doesn't have to do with just human beings. For example, if an electron has uh, a possibility of going along path A or path B, at that moment there will be a split of the universe, and the electron will go on path A in one universe and path B in the second universe. And this is actually based on solidly on quantum mechanics. Now, there was a physicist in England, uh, Oxford uh, University in England, David Deutsch, who applied this to time travel, and he worked it out. And what he found was that uh, when you go back in time, the moment you arrive in the past, there would be a split of the universe. You would arrive in a parallel universe in which you could, in fact, prevent your grandparents from meeting each other. You would just find yourself in this weird alternate universe that you were never born in. Uh, However, remember I said there was a split. The other universe you don't arrive in. And that universe leads to the history that we're familiar with, so that there is no paradox. In other words, the upshot is is that you can travel back in time. The past you arrive in is not the past that you came from. Okay, And this is, as I said, based on parallel universe theory, which is based on quantum mechanics. So the information that you were talking about, you would not, there, would be, there would be a fundamental uncertainty about where that information for, for curing cancer came from. In other words, when you get it, it may not have been from your universe. It may have come from an alternate universe. Now, you can still use that information, but it doesn't affect the original universe that sent the information to you. Okay, you see that? Well, so, let me tell you why that's terrifying to me, because I feel like this leads down a road of nihilism, right? So in other words, and this is where we were talking, I have a problem with this, and I believe this is the most probable, but this is why it's scary to me. So Nick is having a ha- Nick is at a restaurant deciding to have a hamburger or a fish sandwich. I pick right. hamburger. I create an anti-choice me who picks the fish sandwich, but I'm not really in control. I'm just a product of the guy that didn't choose the hamburger. Now I'm Nick that chose a fish sandwich that just popped into existence because the actual guy who made the choice is still trucking along that timeline. And here I am. I'm a Nick created by an anti-choice. Oh, so no, kind of no, no, like no, no, no. See, that's where you have to be careful. No, you have to be careful about that because, no, the other didn't create. It, at the moment, remember that, that you, at, it was the fact that you were contemplating both choices. So there, that it, you didn't create either one. Both are happening at that same instant. 
So it isn't that you choose the one and the other one was created. The, it, you, you, you were making the, there was only one you that was making contemplating. If you were only contemplating having a cheeseburger, then that's it. But if you were saying, well, well am I going to have a cheeseburger or a fish sandwich, that's when the split is going to occur. So there's not a you that created the one or the other. It was when you decided that you were making two different choices. So that's not, uh, mm-hmm. it's not, that, there's there's no, you know, being, uh, So the split is when the choice appears, not when the choice is made. Right. Basically. Okay. Yeah, but I feel like you become nihilistic because you'd be like, well, it doesn't matter what choice I make because there's always a me making the opposite choice somewhere else. So well, really, what control do I have? Only if, over? If, only if you're contemplating making alternate choice. In other words, if you say, "Gee, will I go to this movie or not?" At that moment, there's going to be a you that is making the choice between going to the movie and a you that does not. There's two separate ones, but the one doesn't create the other. It's because of the fact that you have even just decided that you are setting up. So, in other words, in a sense, what you did was to set up an experiment. Remember, I said about the electron taking path A or path B, right. I have to experiment in order for that to happen. As soon as I set up that experiment with the two possible alternatives, they both happen. In oh, fact, okay. one, of, one of my favorite, you know, uh, Yogi Berra, you know, was a great baseball great, and he, and he had what were called yogiisms. A lot of people don't know about those things, but they, they, were, they were famous paradoxical statements that he would make. And one of my favorite that I like to tell people that that uh, quantum the parallel universe answers one of his favorite statements was, "When you come to a fork in the road, take it." Now that doesn't make any sense, but in parallel universe theory, it does. Then you do. Yeah. yeah. So, so basically, what you're saying is, not until you consciously decide to make a choice does the timeline start to split. That's when it actually starts to split. Is when you consciously no, no, when you con- when you contemplate. Uh, having alternative for your choice, but up until so, you contemplate it, it, it stays the same. But once you think in your head, "I'm going to, I might do this," to that's when it actually splits, though. Right. In other words, that's remember what wow. I said. It's like setting up the experiment, I'm setting up the experiment with two possible alternatives. That's the equivalent of you is deciding I'm going to have this or that. Okay. No, I have a question. I, I, I'm very... Let me, I, hey, Dwayne, I, I real quick, choose. let me tell Dr. Mallet, you know, I think one of the crown jewels in your career is you finally got through to Dwayne. I've been trying to yeah, explain to him. It's definitely a feather in your cap that you made Dwayne understand any of this. Go ahead, Dwayne. Yeah, I, I just put in our Facebook messages. After listening to you and Nick, I'm going to have to watch like Honey Boo Boo decompress. My head is spinning. Yeah, like, when, when I go to a restaurant, I can't make a decision on food. So this is what I truly do. I'll give the waiter or the waitress three uh, menu items, and I'll say, please bring me one. Am I affecting the timeline at that point when I give somebody else that option yeah, to pick an item that, for me? because now they are making the decision for you, but right. that's the same experiment. I mean, when I set up a path for the electron, okay, <laughs> the electron is independent of me in a sense. I just set the experiment in motion. Now, the electron, however, is making the two. And I'm in a separate universe that the electron has made. You have to remember, now, it's me now in, in, path, in path A and me in path B that the electron has selected. 
Ah, gotcha. Wow. So we've got a few minutes left. Tell us exactly how the science of this works. I'm sure everybody wants to hear how the science of cosmic framing and taking this laser and creating a circular loop. What is the science behind this, and how close are we to achieving this? Because your book came out, I think, in 2009, so it's been a few years. What kind of progress have you made? Yeah, well, the thing is, is that you have to remember that this is scientific research, and I and I remind people of two of a couple important things. Um, when Einstein came up with his equation equals mc squared, people really forget that that equation implies that you get an enormous amount of energy from mass, a small amount of mass. Originally, no one, including Einstein, saw how this might be practical, how you could actually get that. It wasn't until many years later, and his theory came out in uh, 1905, it wasn't until the 1930s that nuclear chain reactions were discovered, which allowed for the way in which it happened. So that's important. And the thing is, is that whenever you make a scientific prediction, it just doesn't happen. That's where one of the, my favorite movie, of course, is one of my favorite movies is Back to the Future. But real yes. science not happen that way. And it's the same thing in my my work is based on Einstein's general theory of relativity, which says you can use gravity to manipulate time. That's important. And one of the things that also is in Einstein's theory is the fact that that matter isn't the only thing that can create gravity. It turns out that light can create gravity too. And that's where my breakthrough came in because I realized that if gravity can alter time and light can create gravity then I could use light to alter time. And I did all of this mathematically, but what I realized is that by using circulating laser light, it has to be laser light, it has to be intense circulating beam of light. And you can create a circulating beam of light in a number of ways. You can think about bouncing light off of mirrors to make it go into a loop. And that is the key to my work, because in Einstein's theory, space and time are linked to each other. Whatever you do to space also happens to time. And so right. the thing that I first had to realize is that this circulating light beam has to twist space. And I, the analogy that I like to use for people to get them to understand this is to think about, uh, let's suppose you have a cup of coffee in front of you right now. And think of the coffee in the cup as being like empty space. And think of your spoon as being like the circulating light beam. What happens when you take the spoon and stir the coffee? The coffee starts swirling around. You sort of create a vortex in the coffee. Well, that's what the circulating laser light does. It actually creates a vortex in the empty space. It's like stirring in the coffee. You can't see the empty space, okay, because um, (laughs) it's empty space. But now let's come back to the coffee. Let's suppose you drop a coffee bean in then it turns out that as you stir the coffee around, the coffee will drag the coffee bean around. So you can see the effect of the uh, spoon, you might say, stirring the coffee by seeing the coffee drag the coffee bean around. The thing that plays the role of the coffee bean is a neutron. If you put the neutron into the empty space, then when you turn on the circulating light beam, as the space is getting twisted, it will drag the neutron around. So even though you can't see the space itself getting twisted, twisted, you can actually see it dragging the, the neutron around. That's what the real experiment would first look for, is that when you turn on the circulating light beam, that you could actually see this twisting of space. Now, space and time are linked. Whatever you do to space, it also happens to time. If all of us move along the timeline from the past, present, to the future. The thing is, is that if you twist space, 
you can twist time into a loop, okay? And along that loop, you can go from the past to the present to the future. But remember, you've made that timeline into a loop, so you can go from the future back to the past. And all of this is solidly based on my equations, which are based on Einstein's uh, theory of gravity, general relativity. Wow. But Einstein's theory of gravity actually has been demonstrated. I mean, we do know that. Are you ever so just amazed that you figured all this out? This is beyond my reasoning that one human being could sit there well, with and just write down equations and decipher all this. Well, the thing is, is that it take took years, I mean, years to, to learn the craft of, of uh, physics, and uh, you know, and to learn the craft of uh, Einstein's theory. So uh, it took me a long, long time. Uh, but the thing is, is that it was part of my singular goal to understand how yeah. you manipulate time. And the thing is, is that now as far as the cost is concerned, this comes back to what I said. You know, everyone's familiar with this Large Hadron Collider that's out in CERN, okay? Yeah. The purpose of that device was to, to uh, establish the existence of a particle that has been given the uh, publicity name of the God particle. So actually, the, technically, it's called the Higgs particle. Now, here's the way that timeline worked. The theoretical physicist who predicted that particle predicted it over 40 years ago. It took 10 years to build the experimental device to verify their theory at a cost of $10 billion. And all that device does is smashes subatomic particles together to see whether you get this Higgs particle. Now, you see the point that I'm getting at as far as expense? Um, Yeah, definitely. Just to do the feasibility study of my work is going. We need at least a, a quarter of a million dollars. Now, from the standpoint of expense, that's cheap as far as. But that's what we have to do. We have to do a feasibility study to show what are the various experimental possibilities that can be done to show this effect of twisting a space. Now, after that, we're going to have require you know, millions of dollars to actually do the actual experiments based on the feasibility study. And then after that, it's going to be what we learn from the twisting of space will help us to learn what we need to do to twist time. So it could take decades, and that's real science, and that's not, you know, as I said, that's the difference between that and back to the future. I mean, real science is expensive, and it's time-consuming. And that's what I try to convey to people in the book. That that this is this is uh, what real science is based on, not just my work, but ev- all real science. It takes years and years, and it's expensive. The question is, is that um, are people willing to uh, invest the money in order to see these things happen? And in the case of the God particle, uh, it actually required a consortium of a number of different countries in order to do this uh, ten billion dollar <laughs> experiment. So. That's where things stand, is right now I have the equations, the theoretical background, and I do have an experimental partner. His name is Chandroy Chowdhury. He's a laser specialist, and he is interested in uh, verifying my theory. And what we're the process in right now is trying to get the funding that we have for the uh, feasibility study. And we've been getting a certain amount of it. We've got about $11,000, but that's a long way from the quarter from uh, that, won't, that won't even feet. buy you a used DeLorean, sir. They go for about 25000 starting out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, people I, 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 well, why, why don't people put more money into this? It's something that's it's so amazing and, and so many opportunities and doors open. Why aren't there right. rich people out there who, can, who want to add this? I don't understand that. 
Well, that's no, that in fact, you, but you you hit on a very important point. The thing is, is that that they want to see a return on their investment that they can put into practical terms. And and in this case of what I'm doing, I, I actually have told people that the in between process before you even get to the time travel portion is something that would be worth investing in. Because remember, I said that the circulating light can twist space, empty space. This could lead to a new type of space propulsion, independent of the time travel thing. And this could happen at a lower energy level than the, the expense for time travel. So what I've been but trying to do... But what about magnets? Oh, would magnets be easier? Is there any possibility? No, no, like, you've got to remember that. Manhattan Project was magnets. No, no, magnets, no. No, no, no. Two things. Number one, you have to remember that magnetism is already involved in this. Because what people sometimes forget is that light is actually oscillating magnetic and electric fields. That's what light is. So you're actually using oscillating magnetic and electric fields to begin with. That, that's what light is. So that's actually part of the experiment already. See, now this I can understand. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so the thing is, is that, uh, but as I said, once again, it's trying to get investors to realize that this is a long-term. Wow. There are so time. many moving parts to this. I know you have to go. Let me let Fern have the last question because she has, I mean, she has really been following what you've been doing and she is very science-minded. Fern, you've been waiting patiently. What did you want oh, to ask yeah. Dr. Mallet? Uh, first of all, it's, it's just a real pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Mallet. I've done, I've done a lot of research on you and your work, and I just have to say, you are an intellectual rock star. So I'm totally enthralled with you, your work, um, your ease and ability to be able to talk to people and explain it in real terms, and it's just fantastic. I think what you're doing is fabulous all around. Um, doing research, I was looking at uh, an article I read from CERN, and it talked about a hidden valley theory. And if and you can correct me, of course, if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that it has to do with dark matter and dark energy and its gravitational force, its effect on our universe, but they perhaps believe it is from a parallel or alternate universe affecting us. Is that correct? That's a possibility. I mean, that's not that that that's a conjecture, right? That's a possibility. But it's not. Is that a, is that a viable? Do you in your in your mind and in your opinion is that really a legit uh, theory? Would, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the thing is, for I mean, I I would have to study very carefully uh, their theory before I could actually you know tell you that I really believe it or not. Well, and we were okay, and I, I certainly don't want to put you on the spot like that to do that. But you know, my my real question is if this is if this let's just say this is fact that it's been proven and just just for the sake of let's say um when you when you get this machine up and running if you are traveling from one universe to a separate parallel universe and this is the case would it, would there be a risk of uh any of this matter or um previously undiscovered uh mass getting affecting our universe essentially and would there be a trade-off? Like, if you go to an alternate universe, would there have to be a trade-off of mass to our universe to take up Ooh, that good question. lack of Ooh. lack of uh, mass? Yeah. Well, in fact, there would be because you actually have to use energy to travel back in time. So the energy that you're putting into the device is the energy that would allow you to get to, from one universe to another. But that mm -hmm. wouldn't necessarily affect all of the other matter in the universe. 
because, for example, uh, just to use a simple example, a nuclear reactor, we get, the energy we get from the nuclear reactor, from nuclear reactions, doesn't affect the dark matter or dark energy in the universe itself. So uh, any energy that you would use to try to uh, create time machine, or even, for instance, to go to the future, uh, which would require just using speed, for example, of a rocket, wouldn't affect the net energy of this universe. It would just mean that you're converting from one universe, energy from one universe, into, you know, energy. Uh, at your, you're using the energy uh, in this universe to get to the other universe. So, uh, no, overall, you have to remember that in this parallel universe, overall there would be an energy conservation that's going on. But the parallel universe notion didn't originally take into account the existence of uh, dark energy or dark matter, so it's not clear how that would affect things. So it would be like two buckets okay. connected, like you take water out of one bucket, the other bucket would fill in the void, basically, is what you're saying? So uh, the energy you take out of one universe, the other universe would put that energy back in and it evens out at the end? Well, yeah, Well, when you put it that way, the thing is is that let's suppose you're just talking about our own universe, okay? The energy that you take, that you have, is never lost or gained. There's never a loss. What you're doing is converting it from one form okay. to another Okay, that's right, form. that's right. Right. Gotcha. And that's, what, that's what's happening. One last point I want to make, because I have to touch on this. I was reading positrons are actually traveling backwards in time. Is that a true theory? And two, can we attach some kind of message to a positron through some kind of pulse or, or some kind of change that prior people would recognize when that positron uh, arrives there? Right. The thing is, is that that is the way in which Feynman, Richard Feynman, thought about antimatter originally. That's exactly the correct. The thing is that his notion was that what we call positron, which is an anti-electron, is an electron moving backward in time. Right. The thing is, is that it doesn't allow us to have additional energy, I mean, different additional information by traveling back because, you know, when you create the a positron-electron pair, the thing has already traveled from the future. You haven't, you know, sent information with it. So there's no way for you to control it. You know, it's just happening at that particular point where you've created it. So it's it's not possible to use that to send information back to the past. So there's uh, no way to alter it where somebody would see it in the past and go, what's going on with this positron? It's not the normal positron. It's been affected. No, for no, no. What they, what, what, the way in which they would interpret it is that, that there was energy that was due to a photon, and that energy of that photon was enough to create a positron-electron pair. So they would they would interpret it as the net energy that was from the original photon being large enough to create uh, a pair. In fact, that's what we call it, pair creation. They would not see it as being something that, uh, you know, came from the future. Mathematically, what Feynman said is that we could interpret it as though what gotcha. is that the positron was traveling, or the electron was traveling from the past, and met with uh, another electron, but that's not, but from our standpoint, we would just see it as being this photon that was traveling towards the future, having enough energy to create simultaneously a positron and an electron. 
Wow, that actually totally answers my question. All right, I've kept you on the line too long. I could talk to you for the next 10 hours about this. I'm sure Fern could too. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm on your way out the door. Tell everybody where they can find you if they'd like to look up more information about your work. Oh, right. Thank you. I mean, the thing is is that they can uh, go to the uh, University of Connecticut website, and if they want to find out more information there, it's – let me just find my card. Fern, are you elated during this interview? I know you're bouncing off Oh, I'm floating on air. Floating I've been looking forward to this for so long. I just want to so thank long. you. You've made me understand a little bit more, but I'm still lost like a child in the wood. But thank you. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, the, uh, the address is www.physics.ucon.edu. Okay. And Why not? Think, right, www.physics.ucon. That's U-C-O-N-N dot E-D-U. And they can also, if you... If you guys or anyone listening wishes to become a Facebook friend, please contact me. You can come on my Facebook page, and I'll be very happy to uh, to have you on it. And once again, as I said, I think you'll find the book Time Traveler to be uh, an interesting journey. Oh, yeah, definitely. Easy read. Like I said, it's not what I thought it would be. I was totally enthralled. I got through it really quickly, and I came away with an absolute grasp of what you're trying to do. So I definitely definitely recommend the book to everybody. And for anybody listening, I will post the link to the book on our Facebook page on the Ignorance Equation, as well as it's also there's a link on this player for anybody who wants to check it out. All righty, um, Dr. Mallet, I want to thank you so much for coming on today. We've got to have you back. I didn't even get to your Huffington Post piece that I wanted to talk about, but I've still got buckets and buckets of stuff I want to talk to you about. So oh, we'll yeah, have you have back. come on your program okay. again. All righty, awesome. sir. Thank you very much. Um, next week on Kettle of Fish, we are having from America's Got Talent finalist, comedian Gary Veter. I'm saying that correct. Veter. I know you're looking forward to that, Dee. So everybody be back here. I'll have the archive up of this episode in about a half hour. All righty, guys. Everybody say goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.